Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We have a really great show for you. Phil, who do we have today? Yeah, today we have Russell Breton, and Russell is is a guy who I know you guys are going to be inspired by. You're going to be encouraged. This guy is the founder of Vision Launchers. He's a public speaker. Um, he was in the foster care system for a little bit, and you'll you'll hear his story. He's now an entrepreneur doing some um, really really cool stuff uh, to encourage people and to motivate, particularly motivate millennials. Right now, he has a mo- uh, millennial manifesto that you'll hear in this interview. But uh, but Russell is is a, is a man who is I mean he's just exudes passion. He just exudes inspiration and the guy is, uh, he was, I was excited to get him on the show because it's a little different than the norm on what we, what we're bringing, but, and his story is definitely not normal. So you're in for a treat over this next little bit. Um, before we get there, I want to tell you about a great opportunity in May that, that we have, um, the CAFO, uh, Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit. So much great information. Um, it's going to be in Dallas this year and you can find out more information about that at, at, uh, CAFO.org. I believe it's backslash summit, but we'll have that link on the show notes. Uh, after the, after this uh, interview I, I was able to do with Russell, uh, we're also going to have the third installment of what I learned, what Phil, that's I, uh, learned in uh, 2017. And as I said before, it's not so much learning as much as confirming things that uh, God's been teaching me over the years. And so today we're going to be talking about worldview and, and that uh, you definitely, uh, I'm excited to be able to share that with you. Uh, after that, Karen's got a, a recommendation. And as always, we're also going to discuss a little bit about what Russell talked about. So without more from me and Karen right now, we're going to get you to this interview with Russell. Well, Russell, it is so good to have you here on the show today. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. I, I was able to uh, hear you speak recently at a conference, and when I when I heard you, I thought, you know, I really want to get you on to be able to share um, really your passion, your voice, your your story with our audience, because I know they'll be able to learn a lot from you and also be super encouraged by by you and what uh, what you're doing today. So if you could just, uh, you know, quickly introduce yourself to, to everyone and just share a little bit uh, about how you got to be what you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm just impressed that you survived the talk, let alone wanted me <laughs> on to talk a little bit more. Uh, it was it was pretty funny. My energy tends to be a, a little more than most people are prepared for. And uh, when I was invited to speak at uh, that particular event, I was like, are you guys sure? And they're like, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And so we got through it and it turns out that uh, people got some stuff from it. So I'm encouraged that that you survived and, and that we're circling back here today. Um, so yeah, my name is Russell Breton and I'm probably the most unlikely success story ever in that I'm more than likely, at least in my life experience, the most unremarkable person I've ever met. <laughs> and uh, you know, every time I hear an interview like this or a podcast or I read a book, I always hear, we always hear the same story. It's always one, once upon a time, I was nothing, but now, look at all the mountains I've climbed and look at how amazing I am. And I love those stories, they're so inspiring. But my story's not quite like that. Um, I was born just an average guy, an unremarkable guy in, in sort of a, a, a storm of, of chaos of sorts, as I'm sure many people can relate with and we'll probably get into that later. And 
really my entire life story from then till now has just been uh, a guy with no real remarkable traits to him at all trying to build an extraordinary life. And that's my story. And that's kind of where I'm at here even today and what I'm doing. And what I love is that um, I'm not necessarily talented at anything. I don't come from money or I don't even have a college degree. And um, I'm standing here, sitting here today talking with you. And I love my story because if anybody's listening to my voice right now, it's proof that they can do anything because we're talking right now and I'm here. And so that's kind of the summary, I guess, of how I would sum up my story before we jump into the details. Mm -hmm. And I, I just feel like I'm the, I'm the poster boy for average, but you don't have to be above average to do the extraordinary. And I feel like that's the best advice or the best information I've ever stumbled into mm -hmm. in my life. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, you know, you alluded to, I mean, you, your, your background really, I mean, you started as a foster kid. I mean, you were, you were a foster kid growing mm -hmm. up and today yeah. you have your own business that you're working, mm -hmm. you're, you know, a partner you're working with. And, uh, can you just share, mm -hmm. you know, about that, share your childhood, how you overcame obstacles yeah, and absolutely. started your own business, like you said, without even getting a college degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, my childhood really was, I like to say I was born into a storm of of chaos and it was the most wonderful thing that could have ever happened to me. I had the privilege of being born into pain. Um, and the reason I say privilege is because pain is inevitable in life anyway. I was able to learn at an early age how to move through it, not from it. And I set me apart in my life um, in, a, in a really unique way. So, I mean, before I was even born, my mom was in a car accident. She was drinking and driving when she was nine months pregnant with me. Uh, car was wrapped around the pole, uh, life lighted out. Luckily I survived. I think I have all my marbles still. And, um, that's really, I mean, my story began before I even showed up on the scene, uh, in, in a way, uh, with, with some, with some chaos. And when I was born, uh, I was born into an environment of, um, alcoholism. My mom, um, was kind of going through a lot of things in her life and didn't really know how to deal with it. She's a beautiful woman, but she just didn't know how to deal with all of those things going on at that time. And so she got into alcoholism and I was this little kid, um, around the age of first grade. Um, and I would come home from school and my mom would be unconscious or there would be, uh, the things going on that were hard for a kid to process. And, um, you know, there were times I would come home from, from, uh, from school. I had had to walk myself. Just be there to pick me up. And, uh, my mom would be unconscious. Uh, one time I when there was like a grease fire, she was cooking and then she passed out and uh, there was a fire. And, and as this little first grader, I had to put the fire out, drag my mom out of the house, call 911, wait for the paramedics to get there. That was my life. And uh, over the system, and that was its own version of, of, of pain in my life. I, um, I, my, the first foster, um, I don't talk about this a lot. So I'm giving you guys vulner vulnerable information here. Um, the first foster care um, family that I was with, the lady was was just very, very abusive and in a lot of ways. And it was just, it was a very confusing and painful time. And eventually um, caseworker came and asked me how my time was with my new family. And I told them, not really knowing anything different. I was just, I just thought that's how it was. And uh, they lady ended up getting arrested and then I was moved on to another family, which was um, 
much nicer. And just in that experience, I was lost and confused. I didn't really know where my mom was or why I was in this place and what was going on. And, um, man, it was just, it was painful. And, um, I eventually got reunited with my mom. She worked her way through rehab and was just very committed to get her life back on track. And, um, so I would be like slowly integrated back into, um, life with her. And, um, finally I moved back in with her and, uh, we didn't really have anything. Uh, we lived in a barn for a while with, uh, with a guy from our town. I literally lived in a barn. Like I slept here and there was a cow like right there. And I would look at the cow while I was sleeping. Like we lived in a barn and, uh, my mom, probably the greatest love letter that's ever been written in the history of my life has been my mom making the choices that she made post um, rehab. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really, I'm really blessed that I was able to see her fight for us like that. And I know not everybody gets to have that experience. Um, but for me, that was a really powerful thing. You know, we were homeless basically for a while. She was working four jobs. Finally, we were able to rent this house. And this is an interesting story. Um, and I'll never forget this moment. This was a moment you know, you ever notice how like sometimes in life, like single moments, they kind of stand out to you and they kind of define you yep. from that moment on. Mm-hmm. This was one of those defining moments for me. And uh, we were living in this tiny, tiny house, one bedroom. She didn't have a bedroom. She slept on the floor. And my younger sister and I shared a bed in the other room. And um, my mom was working four jobs, putting herself through college and dealing with my sister and I um, and never complained. She just realized that if she didn't fight like her life depended on it, none of our lives really had a chance. Mm. And so that's what she did. And I remember I would sneak out at night and my mom would be sitting at our table, which was like a poor excuse of a table. It was basically a piece of wood with things that kept it vertical. And she would sit at that table late at night and she'd have a pot of coffee brewing and she would have two giant alarm clocks that were just beeping every 15 minutes in, in sequence so that she didn't fall asleep. And she would be doing her homework, studying, working, just getting prepared for the next day. And I would stay up late and I'd watch her and my heart would break because as this little boy, I couldn't do anything to help her. I couldn't do anything to make the situation better. But I saw her fighting for me and I knew that was because she loved me. And that was so powerful. So late at night, I used to write these little notes and I used to tell her like, I'm sorry I was bad today. I wasn't good at listening you're the best mom, things like that. And then I would say like, you can come give me a hug if you want. And then I'd fold it into a little airplane and I'd throw the airplane, uh, the paper airplane at her. And then I'd run back into bed and jump into the cover. So I didn't get in trouble for being out of bed, even though I just gave incriminating evidence that I wasn't in bed. And, uh, she used to come in and she used to always take about 10 minutes and just kind of rub my back. And then she'd go back and every night she probably got about an hour and a half of sleep. And then she'd wake up at four 30 or 5 AM, get ready, drop us off at the babysitter go to work, go to work, go to work, go to class. And she finally graduated from um, her college at the top of her class. And she gave uh, like the valedictorian speech at her graduation. And I'll never forget that speech. She said, I did not want to be here. And I wanted to quit. Tears, emotion, just welling up. I'm like, you you know how you can feel it. It's like, whoa. And she said, I did not want to do this. And I wanted to quit. And I was fed up with it the entire time, but my boy wouldn't let me. And then she pulls out this box and it's full of all those letters I wrote her when I was 
little kid. And she starts reading them. And she said, my little boy told me I was this. And my little boy reminded me that I was this. And my little boy showed me that I'm not just fighting for me. I'm fighting for him and blah, blah, blah. And it was an emotional moment for me. And it was in that moment that I realized that no matter what life tries to take from you, you always have a choice to choose to be great. And nobody in the entire world has permission to take that choice from you because circumstances will come and go, but our choices are always what carve out the shape of our future. Sometimes it's in the face of a storm. Sometimes it's not, but wherever you grew up, however you grew up, whatever you've been through or what you are currently going through, none of it can touch your ability to choose to be more. And what's more than that, what I learned in that moment is that the more storm you go through, the deeper your roots have the potential to be. And I realized that in that moment, God, I, I, I don't know what the faith belief is for maybe the people listening to this, but for me, I felt blessed that God b- chose to bless me with the opportunity to have roots that go deeper than my circumstances. And ever since that moment, as this little kid, I've lived my life in a way to make that revelation as true as I possibly can. Mm. That's kind of a quick snapshot of my childhood. We grew up and my mom eventually uh, graduated and she bought one of the restaurants she was a waitress at Mm. and moved on up. And now she's an elected official in the community and she's my personal hero and just turned our whole lives around and then rewind it back to me. So we grew up poor, right? So it's not fun to be a poor kid when you're in school. It's not fun to have the off-brand sneakers and the hand-me-down shirts and the not cool lunchable pack, like it's just not cool. And I wasn't super keen on not being cool. So as a kid, I learned that money could be made at any age if you just hustled. Mm -hmm. And so I started my first business when I was eight years old. Um, I had like a rock traveling rock sales emporium and I would just stack a whole bunch of cool looking rocks on my radio flyer wagon. And I would go knock door to door in my little town. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, excuse me, sir, would you like to buy some rocks? And I would sell these rocks and I started doing that. And then I started getting people on like a monthly subscription program to my, to my rocks. And I would create these stories around the rocks. And I'm like, if you subscribe and you pay me, you know, five to $10 a month, I'll bring you two rocks every week. And these will be peace rocks. I just made it up. I don't even know what I was thinking. And pretty soon I was making pretty good money. I was buying my own sneakers. And so then I upgraded to a lemonade stand and then I let I franchised it and I let some other kids in some other neighborhoods open up their own lemonade stands and I'd ride around on my big wheel and I'd collect my money. And then, I mean, I just was ridiculous and my mom was all about it. And then I, I started lawn mowing and then I started a baseball card shop in my room. And then finally, I think one of my best ventures as a child was I built this amazing tree fort. And this tree fort was like the exclusive club of all the kids in the neighborhood. And what you, the, the, the cost of entry for membership into this tree fort was you had to do my chores. So every Saturday there'd be a line of kids out in front of my door and they would, I would give them all a slip of paper with a chore and they would do them. And I would just go pay, play in my tree fort. And when they were done, my mom would sign it off and they'd come and have access to my fort. So messed up, so messed up. <laughs> but I had this entrepreneur driving me my whole life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I also had a, um, a spirituality kind of drive in me my whole life. And, um, 
it's just hard to explain, but um, from a really young age, I think I was really familiar with pain and struggle and I chose to be consumed by it, but rather I chose to be fueled by it and mm-hmm. I was able to see pain in others and I was moved by it for some reason. It was just like this compassion driven kid. And so I started a church in my garage when I was 11 <laughs> and I was preaching every Sunday night and I had about 25 people coming uh, every night. Most of them were my family and they had to come, but I was into it. And I mean, I took offering and I had a choir, which was my younger sister. And I was so in and my life hasn't really changed since then. Like my whole life has just been this journey of exploring. How is it that I can live the life that I was created to live? And then along the way, help other people do the same. Mm. And that's really what I'm trying to do with my life and what I continue to strive to do with my life. And, um, it's just a crazy, interesting journey. Yeah, can you quickly tell us too that just today that's what you're doing in your business basically. Mm-hmm. And, and so can you just tell us what what you're doing, how people can find out more about what you're doing sure. um uh in 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 your business today? Yeah, so um I've started a, a bunch of businesses in my life and uh some good, some not so good. And um what I currently do right now is I own a company called Vision Launchers and what Vision Launchers does, uh we are a creative technology marketing and branding firm. And we originally started helping people start businesses. So people would come to me with a dream or an idea. And then I would go, boom, here you go. And it was so fun and addicting um, because we got to help people take their dreams and their potential and then make it their life. And so that's what I do. Um, And then beyond that, we're also uh, in the process of launching a new product um, that is more of an education product that teaches people how to build a life and business they love through online coaching and content and courses and podcasts. We're about to launch a podcast of our own. Um, and our first product in that direction was a, um, a video series called the nomad minute. And it was just a series of videos that were 60 seconds long that talked about ideas for being extraordinary. And we had people on and we would talk and every episode is 60 seconds, no fluff, no ums and uhs, no long winded stories like these. And, uh, cause I have a tendency to talk and, um, and it was good. And so that's what we do. And you can find us online at uh, visionlaunchers.com or russellbretton.com. And you can dive further and check all that stuff out. Yeah. And I encourage you all out there to, to check it out. Those nomad minutes, they are. They're, they're little nuggets of wisdom. And I'm and, um, glad that you were able to do that, uh, Russell. Um, now I want to just, I want to kind of transition. Um, well, actually, sure. before we do that, I, I want to just hear from you. If you have a couple nuggets of wisdom for the foster adoptive parents out there, you know, with the, the little... Now, your mom obviously impacted your life in so many mm-hmm. amazing ways, but there was a time where, you know, you were in, in foster homes. And yeah. what, what advice do you have for the foster and adoptive parents coming from uh, a kid who was in the, in the system to encourage yeah. them to know how they can best encourage and motivate and, and really kind of attach the children that, uh, yeah. that come into their homes? Man, I'm getting emotional as you asked me that question. Um, I just got back from the Dominican Republic about 14 days ago, and I spent about four days at a special needs orphanage in uh, the Dominican Republic. Um, and I got firsthand exposure to some kids that um, in the Dominican Republic, when a kid has special needs, they're abandoned in a cardboard box, kind of like we do kittens at Walmart, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, they just aren't uh, really equipped to deal with them financially or otherwise. And so 
there is no mechanism to take care of them except for this one orphanage, which has basically no funding and no trained staff. And so I've been going there for the last couple of years and working with these kids. And when you asked me that question, I flashed to them in my mind and in their experience. And the reality is that there is so much need and love is always the answer. And I don't have all the answers. I've been in that, in those shoes as the, the child, not as the foster parent. But one thing I can tell you is um, as a, as a kid. And when I was in that experience, words meant nothing to me and actions and time meant everything to me. Um, I felt abandoned and forgotten and all kinds of negative things that do not plant healthy seeds in the, in the heart of a child. And there was a few key people who would just spend quality time with me and create shared experiences. And eventually after they invested equity in me would speak what things of uh, uh, seeds of truth into me. And those seeds of truth were everything. They would take me to play catch or to go fishing and just made me feel normal and included. And I think the number one thing is just to invest time and inclusion and communicate words, but only communicate words if your actions are able to back them up because broken promises are the tapestry of what a lot of those kids paint their reality with. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, and now we're now. Oh wow! That yeah. That that we could we could spend a lot longer on on that. Yeah. Point, but for the sake of time, and and I think sure. that, that will really connect with a lot of people. It's it's really, it's it's quite simple yet it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as you said, it's, it's absolutely just time and actions backing up the words. But uh, mm-hmm. that that takes consistency. That takes patience. That takes it takes really really living it out, which you yep. know, is, is critical. Not just for foster kids, but for every child out there. That's that's for my own kids and my parenting. That's, that's actually very convicting to me too. Um, huge, yeah. So I do want to transition now. What you talked sure. about at the, con- at the conference mm-hmm. uh, was really how we can connect with and motivate millennials um, so yes. they can flourish in their lives. And, yes. and you kind of, you had this millennial manifesto and I don't know if you made it up or if you just kind of brought it together with a bunch of other stuff, but I really liked what you had to say on that. And it really kind of put it into yeah. about eight, eight things that, you know, I'd like to just briefly go through those for our audience on how we can connect and really motivate uh, the millennials in our lives, whether they're in our coworkers, whether they're our kids, whether they're just, you know, friends or people at church or whatever it might be. Um, Yeah. Can you share that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, interesting enough, I, I did make that up myself and I, it, it was inspired and designed entirely out of what it took for me to learn some, I'm probably the most difficult student on earth to be motivated or moved or even to just get my attention growing up. And so I really reverse engineered the process. And I asked myself, like, what did it take for the few key, uh, key people who were able to break through my walls and shell and actually reach me? And it really boiled down to these eight things. And um, I'll try to move quickly through them. But really, the manifesto of millennial motivation, or um, however we titled it, it really, it, it really was just a, a compass of of influence. And so the question we asked in the conference was, how do you motivate, inspire, and move millennials? And the the answer to that question was, you don't. If you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. That's like saying, how do I lead this group of people as an outsider? The answer is you can't. You have to become a part of the group of people you want to lead and then earn the ability to have them follow you. Mm. You have to reach people where they're at before you can lead them where they belong. And in order to reach people where they're at, you have to go there 
and become a part of that culture. And that's one of the biggest break, breakdowns. And I know that seems overly simplified, but as if you're a parent or you're a coach or whatever your role is, if you're surrounded by millennials and you're trying to reach them from a positional level, it's mm-hmm. never going to happen. Mm-hmm. has to be relational. They don't care what your badge says, what your title says, or what authority you have. Well, all they care about is if they believe you care about them, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. And how do you plant that seed in them? Well, that's the better question. So the, the uh, millennial manifesto, it really broke it down. Number one was belonging. The number one drive of every person, not just millennial, ever, who has ever lived, is the drive to belong. I mean, this drive is what creates the current that drives all of the decisions we make. And if, um, it, it, okay, so let me say it like this. The tribe you prescribe to creates a culture. And that culture creates an economy that influences how you think and you feel and you act. Mm -hmm. And so when you don't know who you are, you show people what you think they want to see. And in the process, you'll get even more lost and lose who you are. Because the answer that we're always looking for is, who am I? Mm -hmm. And so when we, we, we compromise, we settle, we cut corners if we don't know who we are, because all we want is to belong. So we're going to show people what they think they want to see, but what we miss out on is if we just be who we are, we'll attract the people we're meant to belong with. So as a coach or a parent or whatever your role is, if you can create a culture of belonging, that is the most fertile ground for connection to take place where you can create a culture that makes people feel like they're a part of something bigger. And by the way, this is what the top brands in America do. This is what MTV does. This is what everybody who's already influencing your kids already does. Mm -hmm. So you either like figure it out or you let them program your child belonging. I mean, that's why people wear certain brands because they want to affiliate with that culture. That's mm-hmm. why people listen to certain music. That's why they use certain computers, whatever it is that they do. Every decision that we make as a human being is simply a narrative that we're trying to tell the world about who we want to be, who we wish we were, or who we think we are. Mm-hmm. So belonging. And then the next one was start with why. This is huge. And there's a whole book about this by someone way smarter than me. <laughs> called Simon Sinek, and I'm sure everybody's heard of the book. Now actually go read the book. And he kind of dove into this idea that's already been talked about for years and years and years and years. And a lot of us already know this, but it's more work, so we just shy away from it. But the reality is that the way our mind is wired, we have our limbic system and our neocortex, and one is designed to control analytics, data, information, and the other is designed to control emotion, and choice, action, and decision. So the part of the brain that controls analytical data and all of the thinking stuff is the furthest part of our brain from what actually influences choice. And the part of our brain that influences decision-making is the close, or the the part of our brain that processes emotion is the closest to the decision-making core. So if you want to reach someone, you have to break through all their walls of analyzing and information and you have to get right to the core, to the heart. And the best way to reach the heart is to answer the question the heart is always asking, which is what if you've ever had a two-year-old in your life? Why, 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 why? So if you can answer the question why and reverse engineer it from there, what you're doing is you're planting a seed of emotion, of intention and unraveling your, your message from there. And so you bypass all the walls and you, and you start with fertile soil. So again, top brands in the world do this. Apple is a master at this. If you've ever watched an Apple ad versus a PC ad, the PC ad will go, this is a laptop. It has an Intel Pentium whatever processor and it can move information at billions of miles a second and it's black and it's shiny. Do you want to buy one? 
and then Apple comes in and they show a man walking on the crest of a mountain right at sunset with his girl holding hands. And right as the sun's about to crest through the trees, the man pulls out the phone, captures a selfie of the two of them kissing with the sun in the background. And then it just says, what if you could capture the most beautiful moments of your life anytime you wanted? Apple logo. Well, I really want that more than I want the black shiny laptop. And so one starts with emotion. They talked about why. Why is capture beautiful moments all the time. And then the what is iPhone. And then the how is by using the camera. It's a reverse engineered process of thinking. As a coach or a parent, you've got to learn how to start with why. Find a common ground that matters to your student or your child and start there and give them a mental image of the topography of the decision you're making so that they can see the intention you've woven into it and they can also see how it impacts their life. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'll try to move faster here. And then number three is fun. Fun is the most magic force in the world and it's underrated and it's categorically misplaced all the time. We're like, this is a time for fun and this is not a time for fun. That is dumb. Because fun is the key that opens the door in the mind to learning. In fact, the way our mind is wired, it will not retain long-term memory until the mind has been inspired to have the desire to learn. And that most often comes from fun. So if you can create an ecosystem of fun where you can gamify experiences, you're not actually goofing off. You're priming the pump for optimal learning for optimal Mm -hmm. influence Mm -hmm. every time. And this doesn't just happen top down, like you to the child, you to the student. You can also create cultures of fun with each other. Peer to peer fun is everything. Like a lot of, uh, athletic teams do this. They, they'll create games that have nothing to do with the seriousness of the sport where they just play together. And in that ecosystem of fun, they create connection, trust, vulnerability, walls go down, the mind stops analyzing and thinking. And all of a sudden, once you've been vulnerable with someone, your connection with them goes deeper because you were seen in a different way and then you felt accepted. So it happens again and again and again and again. And quite honestly, if it's fun, it gets done. If it's not fun, guess what? It's probably not going to get done. Mm -hmm. Number four is meaning and significance. I feel like this one explains itself, but if you're trying to demand something trivial before you give something meaningful and significant as an end game, it's never going to happen. Like a lot of coaches I've seen, like they demand kids to show up on time with their tie and their jacket or parents expect their kids to just do this, that, or the other thing because they said so. It's just not going to be as effective if you demand the trivial without painting a a greater vision of something significant. And if you can find a way to do that, create an end game, an end game, an end goal that's bigger than them, and then show them how they fit into that ecosystem, their sense of self, their sense of worth, their sense of mission increases a thousandfold. And now you don't have to ask them to get up early because they realize the value their life has and they wouldn't ever want to waste that value, so they get up early. It's making it about the roots of the tree, not the fruit of the tree. The fruit of the tree would be like, be on time. But the roots of the tree are realize how much your life matters and how being on time invests in the success and the significance of your future and those around you by this, that, and the other thing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then fifth is passion. Passion is such an misunderstood term. We think passion is something that makes you excited, but in fact, um, That's not, that's excitement. Passion is something you're willing to endure pain for. Mm -hmm. 
And that is what we're all looking for. Even though most millennials are pain avoidant pleasure seeking, actually that's human beings in general, but you can really summarize the millennial generation by most people who are just trying to thin slice that people group as a group of people who are um, wanting to avoid work, do 100% of minimum, leech off their parents, sound familiar? Like these are all the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the millennial generation, as they grow up, t- they, they take lower paying jobs, live out of their car, would rather live in a tent and give all their money to humanitarian work than they would spend a whole bunch of money on a house with a picket fence and have all the trimmings of a successful life. What's interesting is what started as uh, per- being perceived as self-absorbed is now growing into a selfless modality of living. And the reason being is because millennials are just – really, really conscious of themselves and how their life impacts the world. And what they're all looking for is something to be passionate about. Mm -hmm. And if you can help them discover something that they would be willing to suffer for, they will go further than you could ever ask them to go. You could ever pay them to go on their own. And I've got firsthand experience of this in my life and in my coaching practice and in my, uh, my own company and in teams I'm involved with. And I could go deeper on that subject, but I'm telling you, If you want to be an extraordinary leader, help people see what's in them already and help them to connect the dots and see what they were born for and what they'd be willing to suffer for. And everything else falls into place from there. Mm. And then sixth is freedom. And freedom is huge because rules create, create constraints. And if they're not coupled with a sense of unilateral freedom, they can actually siphon off creativity and they can also siphon off the mind's ability to learn how to make um, its own independent decisions and audible decisions and like life tends to happen and we have to create these sidesteps and we have to create these uh, recalibrations. And so freedom is interesting. Um, Like in in the context of a family or maybe a sports team, um, what people – Um, I have this actually written down somewhere and I don't remember what the statistics are, so I don't want to say them wrong, but the statistic was something along the lines of, you know, people remember, uh, 10% of what they see, uh, 50% of what they hear, uh, 80% of what they write, but, or something like that, but they, they remember, and I'll, I'll get these right. I can send it to you. You can fix this later. Uh, but, but they remember something astounding. It's like 90 something percent of what they teach. Mm. And so if you can create an ecosystem of, of freedom, uh, an, an ecosystem where, where people not only feel like they can learn from you, but also where they can step up and contribute themselves, where they can lead each other, where they feel free to fail, feel free to excel, feel free to try new things. That is the fertile ground for excellence and greatness every time. It's when people are afraid to fail that they are actually going to pull their punches and play it safe. But when people aren't afraid to fail and they know that they're free, to fail in the pursuit of their own greatness, they will lead each other and you in ways you could never imagine or even plan for. And then seven is culture and language. Now, you gotta understand, like as a, as a parent or a coach, you're a parent and a coach, but you're also a missionary. And a missionary can be defined as someone who goes into a foreign land or culture, has to learn their language in order to move them from where they are to a better place where they belong. And you cannot move a culture unless you learn the language. And the language of the millennial generation is quite different than any other generation before them with the rise of technology and and, and internet and apps and phones and and the way we, we connect with each other. The way they communicate has changed. The modalities of how they communicate has changed. And not only that, but 
the communication flowing into their life has changed. On average today, the average millennial will receive today, we're talking this very moment, will receive about 5,000 brand messages a day. That's 5,000 pre-programmed messages of someone other than you trying to influence your kid. And on average, about 12 of them will catch their attention and three will actually stick in their mind, which tells you that they are bombarded with information and are just built to reject information that doesn't directly interest or, or motivate them. Um, which is the stakes are now even higher for how we communicate. If we're just talking and, and, and these long lectures that aren't fun, that aren't short, that are not interesting, you're getting nowhere. But as a parent or a teacher, like this podcast you're doing, this is a great example of how to leverage the, the language of a culture podcast. That's a new way of communicating that millennials will sit for an hour and listen to. But if you sat in front of them and talked to them for an hour, it's not going to happen. So play by the rules of the day and age you live in and use them to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a coach, start a podcast, talk to your kids through that. Let them talk to each other through that. Create a platform. It's amazing what happens. Use technology, use live streaming, use Snapchat, leverage the language of the culture you want to reach so you can reach them where they're at and lead them where they belong. And then eighth is leadership. And this is real, real simple. They're not going to care about what you have to say until they've seen you do it consistently with care, compassion, and conviction or passion and conviction leadership, the millennial generation, they do not care how fancy you are or where you've been until they've seen you suffer for it the same way you're asking them to. And then not only that, but then implement, like we talked about before, a little bit of a sense of significance where not only do you show them, do you walk the walk, then teach them, but then invite them to participate in that leadership by leading each other. And when you empower someone to lead someone else, what you do is you show them how to become the hero of their own story. And that creates way more uh, loyalty and legacy and success than you could ever imagine. Some of the best sports teams in history are the best sports teams in history, not just because of the coach, but because the coach created an ecosystem where they could lead each other in the direction of the best version of themselves. And that culture of significance, that culture of greatness, is everything. So that's the real quick snapshot. I could drive deeper on that, of course, but yep. trying to keep it quick here. No, definitely, no. definitely. And you, and you, uh, you definitely went into each of those a lot, you know, m- with more detail uh, during the conference. But I think that that definitely gives us the uh, the understanding, the snapshot, as you said, um, to to kind of even condense it a little bit more. I think you had four little points that uh, I'll just read right here. It's long and uninterrupted meeting. Uninterrupted meetings are counterproductive. Make them shorter. This is kind of the summary of what you just said. Yeah. Uh, learn to use digital channels of communication, give them ownership, vision, and high sense of meaning. And then one way lectures don't work, make the meetings interactive. And I think that kind of brings together what you just said. And it's something that we really need to be thinking about as we're connecting, not just with millennials, but with each other. I mean, I think because of our culture, because of the way it's changing in our society, uh, things are getting quicker. Our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. I know you're talking about preaching when you were 11. You know, I just gave a sermon recently and you know, if you're, if you're preaching more than 25 minutes, you're probably mm-hmm. losing your audience. Um, yep. chances are if you're preaching more than 20, you're losing your audience. So well, they mm-hmm. say every seven minutes you need to do something that changes it up a little bit or else your audience goes to sleep mentally yep. and sometimes literally. So, um, <laughs> we need to really be, uh, 
be aware of that as we're as we're doing these things. And, you know, even even in the podcast, yeah, the medium may be may be better, but we still have to be able to be paying attention to these different things mm-hmm. so that we can not only keep the audience. It's not about keeping an audience, it's about engaging the audience. It's about really moving an audience to action. And so that's yeah. what hopefully we can be doing. And, and I encourage everyone out there to take these points, take this, uh, you know, that uh, Russell has learned from experience, as he said, um, yeah. and be able to put it into action in the different, uh, different ways that you can in, in your work and, and in your lives. Um, well, let's, let's wrap it up now with the way we always do. And it's with a couple questions. And the first of which is, sure. uh, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love, uh, orphan and at-risk children with excellence? Yeah, man, absolutely. I think, um, some of the, the top things that I've read, um, so I read this book called Soul Cravings by Erwin McManus, and it talks about how all of us have cravings that we need to stay alive on a physical level, but we also have a soul that has cravings that we need in order to be fully alive as well. And then, you know, it talks about our craving to love and be loved, our craving to have a sense of significance and meaning in life. And it goes on and on, and it breaks down each one of your cravings. And it says you cannot be fully alive unless all of these cravings are met and your soul and your physical self come into alignment and harmony with each other and you become the best version of you fully alive. And I use that book as like a compass every single day um, because I think uh, at risk kids, um, they may have food, they may have shelter, but what is the most neglected is, is, is the things that are just beyond the surface of the skin that we maybe can't always see and don't always know how to address. And there's the sense of uh, loving and being loved, the, the sense of meaning and significance with their life. And that book really changed the game for me in the, in the way I think. And then the other book that I think everyone in the world should read is uh, not as fancy sounding, but it's called Success Principles by Jack Canfield. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the blueprint for building a successful life regardless of the shambles you've come from. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been really the Bible for me. I've used that as a blueprint for life uh, to take 100% ownership of my life, responsibility for it, and really, really clear, simple principles that I can apply every single day to become a better version of me than my past may have suggested was possible. Mm. Well, that yeah, that's fantastic. I look forward to checking both those books out. I, have, I haven't read either of them. So uh, awesome. that's one of the reasons I love asking that question. I get to add to my reading list, which is already really Absolutely. long, but I know that these are some, some good ones. Um, so the last question, what, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and at-risk children with excellence? Yeah, I think the person who's most impacted my thinking on that level is a, a gentleman I believe you also know. His name is Jason Harper. Um, he's, a, he's a coach. He's a mentor of mine. I met him when I was 16 years old. I walked up to him at a, uh, a snow retreat with my youth group, and I said, um, I'm going to work for you someday. And he's like, uh, okay. Uh, and so nine months later, I was working for him, and um, I uh, moved to Sacramento, and I just followed that guy, and he really took me in as an orphan. I was an orphan heart. Mm-hmm. And um, although I had still connected with my mom and we had made great strides, I still was fatherless. I still was clueless and I still had no idea who I was. And there was gaping holes in the things that made me human. And I was trying to fill those holes with things that will never, ever fill them. And uh, he saw potential in me when no one else did, when I didn't. And he uh, really showed me the father heart of God. And he showed me um, what it looks like to really belong to a family and um to this day, he's in my life and he's influencing me and, um, and it's just really powerful. And I think the number one thing that, he, that he's taught me is that you don't have to be perfect to belong to a family and family isn't always what you're born into. It's where you choose to be from. And I loved that because it helped me rewrite my story. You know, instead of saying my origin point starts here, I'm like, actually, no, 
I've got a really powerful family and, um, and I'm really loved and, um, it's helped me to plug a lot of those gaping holes that, and the things that make me human and, um, really grateful to that, um, for him. So, yeah. Well, Russell, thank you so much, uh, for your time, for your vulnerability, for, uh, just really sharing with us, uh, how, you know, God has just shaped your life and and directed your path to where you are today. It's super encouraging to me. And I'm, I have a feeling it'll be very, very encouraging to everyone listening. So thanks again. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on meant the world. So thanks again to Russell for that, uh, great, uh, wisdom that he shared with us, the things that he's learned the things that he's done, um, just what God has done in and through his life just continues to blow me away every time I hear a story. So Karen, what'd you think? Really, really, really enjoyed this interview, Phil. I am just enjoying season four so very much. Not that I haven't enjoyed the other seasons, but I really like this guy. Um, I feel like I was connecting with him all over the place, which I know is a huge part of his story and a huge part of um, everything that he's talking about. One of the the things that I thought was so spot on, and it's one thing for me to um, teach families and to teach parents or to speak about this at a conference. It's another thing when you have a child who has been through the foster care system, mm-hmm. be able to provide words of wisdom for other foster parents. And what he said is just so spot on clinically, but also, of course, since he has been in that place where um, one of the things that he said and emphasized was that as, as foster parents, as parents of children who have different stories, our actions just have to be so consistent with our words, even more so that our actions even need to be more than our words. And so the, the ways that we show our kids love, the way that we show our kids safety is just so, so incredibly important. I loved what he said, and I might mess up a little bit of the quote here, but he mentioned something about those broken promises, those words that haven't been fulfilled with actions are what foster kids paint their tapestry with. I thought that was such Mm -hmm. a beautiful image um, of just how very important our actions are more than our words. Because really, one of the ways that I um, teach about this is we have to be the unexpected. Our kids, kids in the foster care system, kids who join our families through foster care or adoption, they're expecting us to not follow through with our words. And so in that, we have to be different in that. Yeah, definitely. That, that's something that, as you said that, it reminded me of what Josh Ship said back in the day of uh, season two, where he talked about the Babe Ruth method, as he talked about, you got to call your shots and follow through. Right. And so it's not just doing the stuff and it's not just calling the shot. It's actually telling them you're going to do something and following through with it to let them know that they can count on people. Right. And if you don't follow through, like you said, then that's massive. And so, yeah, he, what he talked about words meant nothing to him, but actions Mm -hmm. and time meant everything to him. Um, and that was something that it it hit me and, and it's hard for me as I've talked about before on the show, because, you know, I'm not like you listening to these stories all the time in your, you know, in your Mm -hmm. practice and I didn't grow up with it. So it's really just hearing these stories here and there. But every time I do, it just makes it more and more clear to think about with my own children how they have had people following through. And they take it for granted, right? And so when you don't have it, I I just can't even imagine what that goes through. So when somebody says something, you're like, yeah, whatever. And I I don't, is that, is that pretty accurate when, when, from what you've heard and what, what you heard from Russell today? Oh, for sure. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when a child experiences an adult or a caregiver, whether that's a parent, a caregiver, a foster parent, an adoptive parent, a teacher, a coach, when they experience 
an adult following through with their words, it actually starts to lay the foundation to what I think Russell was really speaking about in this whole interview, which is resiliency. And I know that's something that we've talked about a lot. I actually remember, I don't know where it was, but someone actually had mentioned like a really specific question to me about resiliency at one point um, that I had to like hand in my psychologist card because I was unable to answer it. But even as um, (laughs) Russell was talking about his millennial manifesto, it's resiliency. It's you could reframe those eight steps with even those seven kind of most common C's, if you will, of resiliency. But even in this whole interview, you know, my husband was in ministry for about 15 years and um, he did a lot of preaching and teaching. And I think some of the most powerful sermons that I've heard um, include what's called an inclusio, where you start out with something and then you come back to it. Well, I don't even know if Russell wanted to do this, or maybe you planned it, Phil, and all of your genius wisdom, but like his whole story is an inclusio. His story is a story of resilience and resiliency where he chose to, in the kind of words that he used, he chose to step up. He chose mm-hmm. to, to grow. He chose to, um, you know, have the connections and really kind of fight for the life that he had hoped for and the life that he wanted. It doesn't mean it's perfect, but um, yeah, just everything about this interview was just highlighting resiliency in my mind. Yeah. You know, I wish I could say it was my genius and wisdom that uh, (laughs) did all that. Um, It, I wrote the outline. So if that counts, then yes, then, then, then yes, it was that, but uh, no, it, it really was a story that, it blew me away. Stuff that I heard, like, I mean, he started a church in his garage as a kid. Yeah. Like he, he's doing like, but it's so cool to see how he didn't give up. Like he didn't say, you know what? It'd be very easy to throw in the towel and be like, you know what? This is just too hard. You know, I went into foster care. My mom was this, my mom was that, you know, and blame it on other people. But instead, like, I mean, how cool is it now? His mom's an elected official. His mom is his hero because she fought for him. She fought to be, to make it. So that's his model to be able to see that. So I hope that encourages people out there. Like no matter what you've done, no matter, you know, how you failed, which we all have, every parent out there has failed and we'll continue to fail our kids. But you know what? They want to love us. They want to um, have us as their heroes. And, and, and you know, we, we want to point them to God, obviously, but God has given them us to be able to do that for them. And if you're an adoptive parent, if you're a foster parent, you can be that as well for your child. And so, you know, I just, I just pray that you hear what Russell is saying to, from that perspective, but then on the back end to be able to encourage people to be able to, to push through. And as he said, the more storms you go through, the deeper your roots will be. Mm. And I thought that that was just something that hit me as well when he said that. So yeah. Any, any other thoughts on that? Yeah. I really, really, really like his millennial manifesto. And maybe as I've just learned earlier today that I am actually a millennial, I was right on the the edge of that entrance into that. So maybe that's one of the reasons why I connect so much with it, but you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to hear his, um, his talk at the conference last year, but what he's talking about, I think he was talking about like, how do we engage in like a professional capacity? But even as he's talking through in this interview about these eight areas, he does often mention like parenting or teaching strategies. And really everything that he's talking about is so compatible with and almost synonymous with synonymous, not a word, synonym. Um, Synonymous is a word. Yes, it is a word. Awesome. Thank you for that check there. Um, it's 
it's the, almost the exact same as connection-based parenting of helping our kids to understand what is going on. As parents, we're chasing down the why. We're figuring out what's going on with my kid. How can I connect with them? How can how can we help them to um, learn a task and then teach a task and have peer mentoring? And I don't know. It was just such a such a good interview. And I feel like um, obviously, if you guys are listening to this right now, then hopefully you listen to the interview too. But bookmark it. Do whatever you need to do because it's such a helpful interview on so many levels. So, Phil, I know that you are sharing with us um, over the next couple of weeks some things that you've learned or kind of relearned in 2017. So what do we have this week? Yeah, this week we got uh, the idea of worldview is everything. You know, worldview shapes so much of who we are. And so much of a worldview, you know, fortunate or unfortunate, is totally determined on where we're born, different parts of the world. Um, the type of religions that you are uh, introduced to, the type of thinking, Eastern thinking versus Western thinking. If you grew up in a Buddhist culture versus growing up in a Christian culture versus growing up in a Muslim culture, you're going to have different worldview. Now, God can take that and transform that into whatever, you know, he can turn that into the truth. Um, But the fact of the matter is we need to meet people where they are in their worldview if we're really going to connect with people. We also need to understand how to fight different things. You know, I'm thinking the thing that keeps coming to my head because I think it's so uh, relevant and unfortunately such a major issue in our world today, but trafficking. You look at take trafficking, for example, to the U.S. If you hear about trafficking in the U.S., you're just... You're, you're flabbergasted that it could even happen, right? When you first hear about it, like that really happens. And then you hear it happens in your backyard, um, you know, downtown Sacramento, I hear it's one of the worst places. And you hear people bring people from India and have them locked up in the back of a restaurant. And they're using them as their waitress. You're like, no way is that happening in my backyard. But that worldview here, it's like, no way could that happen. And we need to stop it. But if you're in India, there's certain communities of India where the entire city is sex trafficking. And that's just what you're born into. You will be in that if you are born into that city. And that's just the way it is. And we, that's just, we can't even fathom that here in the U.S. But how do you fight against that? Or, or you go to you know, Thailand and Cambodia and you, know, you have a Buddhist culture there where sometimes the, the women are seen as lesser. Right. And so a dad will tell his daughter, hey, I just got a loan. I need you to go pay off, you know, work in a brothel to pay off this loan. So that little girl goes and does that. And so you can't just rescue that girl out of that. You have to disciple her out of that because if you just rescue her, she'll say, no, I need to do this for my daddy. And I need to go back in. And so rescuing out, all it does is delay the inevitable in her mind. And so these are things that are real that we need to address. And, and it's not just, yes, it's cultural. That's part of it too. But this goes beyond that. It's, it's really deeply rooted that when you move to a different culture, you'll still have that worldview. And so we really need to understand that, that we're not, we're literally speaking different languages and we're speaking different worldviews, right? And as we'll learn in a couple of weeks, or, you know, I think two weeks, the personalities also come into that too. But today we're talking about this worldview. So anyway, so that's something that there's so much more to that. That's a whole semester worth of, information that we'd need to talk about but just be aware of that be thinking through it and really study it. if you're going to go work in a different culture if you're going to work with people from a different culture if you are working in your hometown with people from other cultures get to know them and understand their worldview and that will go a long way to understanding them and actually starting more of a conversation and really to understand each other so that's that's what i got for you today 
Yeah, that's super relevant, Phil. That's a good word, especially even coming off of what Russell was sharing with us and helping us to learn about even how to engage in a different culture outside of our own generation. Uh, We've got to know about that culture. We've got to learn. And it's so consistent with just even most, the majority of the things on this podcast. Um, Again, I keep going back to the refugee crisis series where uh, how important it is to understand where people are coming from. It doesn't mean that we necessarily assimilate into that culture and that we change our biblical worldview, but it Mm -hmm. means what a what a privilege to understand more about other people. Uh, what a privilege it is, especially even as Propaganda had shared with us a couple of weeks ago. What a privilege when me as someone with such privilege and not a minority gets to learn about someone else. And what does that worldview look like? What does that culture look like? So Absolutely. great job on that for sure. Yeah. So now, Karen, you get to bring to us a uh, recommendation that actually kind of fits right into the interview we had today, as well as, you know, maybe last week when we talked about collaboration and the worldview conversation. So share with us what you got on the recommendation side. Yeah. So today I have a book that is a little bit different from something that I would typically recommend. I think most of my recommendations typically come from a pretty clinical background or a parenting background or a family background. But this one, this one is more of a faith-based and biblically-based type of resource. I think it's really appropriate and it's been super helpful um, for me to read even recently um, with a lot of stuff happening in my life and things that have happened to our family in the last five to 10 years in ministry. So the book is called Wounded by God's People, and it's by an author, Anne Graham Lotz. It'll be on the website um, for you guys. But yeah, it's just a really good book that helps helps you to think about if you have time to read it or listen to it. It helps you to think about um, where is your heart related to conflict and that um, if we're actually kind of living our life in community with um, our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're pretty much guaranteed to be hurt by a brother or sister in Christ. And what does it look like to be hurt by someone um, in our family? And what does it, whether that's in our family uh, in the church or in our immediate family, what does that look like? And then what does reconciliation look like? What does forgiveness look like? And obviously, you know, those are incredibly heavy and big topics that they themselves can be entire seasons of podcasts, but it's a great book and it really is a challenging book. So I would encourage you guys, you know, if there's pieces of your story where you've been hurt by people that you love, especially um, people that are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just a super encouraging book to read. Yeah, no, it's definitely something I'm going to pick up. And I, I do think, like I said before, I think when you're talking about collaboration, you're talking about working with people, when you're talking about doing anything really in life, you're going to fail people, you're going to be failed by people. And I think that it's good to be able to understand those things in so many different ways. So I, I'm, I'm excited to, to read that book. I don't know if excited is the right word, but it's, it's definitely, I definitely want to pick that up and, and, uh, be able to check it out. I encourage you all out there to do the same. So with, with, uh, everything we always do, I, I hope and pray that you'll take everything you learned this week, uh, and you will use it in great ways to see how you can love and care for orphan and vulnerable children better and better every single day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.